If you're looking to grow from six to seven figures in revenue a year, or seven figures a year in revenue to seven figures a month in your e-commerce business, or if you're feeling like you've plateaued in your e-commerce business, this is the podcast for you. You're listening to the Journey to Eight-Figure Ecom Business Podcast. My name is Emmanuel Alea, founder and CEO of Alea Systems, where we build systems that build brands online and teach e-commerce founders how to go from six figures a year to six figures a month in 90 days or less. I scaled my first e-commerce business from zero to seven figures in two years and seven to eight figures three years later. Since then, we've created an agency to help others recreate the same success, partnering with over 50 e-commerce businesses as clients. And in just the last year, we've helped 12 of them go from six figures to seven figures and five of them 10x their businesses going from around 30K a month in revenue to over 300,000 a month in revenue. And we're just getting started. Now, this podcast isn't for everyone. Remember, it's for people who already have an idea, are already selling, but are also not funded, they're bootstrapped and using their own cash to grow their business. Trying to have a life while also having a business, but feeling the pressure of having to do it all yourself. If these are your struggles, we're here for you. And you're going to get the most value from this podcast. In the last podcast, we started talking about the first phase of the journey from start to eight figures, what it looks like to go from side hustle to full-time income with your e-commerce store. It's the first phase. And I stress that the most important component is understanding product market fit and validating that you've achieved it. In this podcast, we're going to continue talking about this phase of the journey, going from side hustle to full-time income by diving deeper into what it means to validate that you have product market fit. We're gonna break this down in three sections. First, we'll go over qualitative ways to measure product market fit using strategies without metrics. Then we'll dive into quantitative ways to measure product market fit using data-driven metrics. And finally, we'll conclude this episode by talking about the biggest decision of all. If we actually have product market fit, should we actually do this business by looking at our profitability? So let's dive in. In an early episode, we already discussed the simplest down and dirty way we used to validate product market fit, right? Basically talk to 30 people and ask them how much they'd pay for this product. And if they say a number that is higher than what you'd plan to sell for, then you know you found that high value problem that they're looking to solve and your solution matches what they're willing to pay to solve the problem. But that way of evaluating product market fit is the most useful at the start when you have no actual paying customers and are still deciding if you should even launch the product. Should you even launch it? Should we do it? Should we start the business? That was at the beginning. But that's not who you are now. You've been selling for a little while. You have some customers, right? Uh, things change once you have customers, right? You have access to even more information and data to help you flesh out product market fit. I break these three into three buckets, right? There's the qualitative, the quantitative, and the financial data uh, and metrics that you can use to help you uh, decide if you have product market fit. The first is qualitative, right? And to me, the most powerful method of validating you found product market fit is a qualitative one we call phone interviews, right? Just do phone interviews with people. Get on the phone. Talk to them. I know it's scary. I mean, most of us e-commerce people got into this game because we wanted to get away from the pressures of having to deal with people constantly. And we like being behind the screen, many miles away, detached from the pressure of dealing with selling to people directly. However, I promise you, it is the most worthwhile activity you will ever do in your business. And I'm not saying you need to do a lot of it or you should do it forever or do a ton of it constantly be on the phone. 
You don't have to, right? Really, all you need is about five to 10 customer phone interviews. You'd be surprised. It doesn't actually take that many calls to get more information than you'll ever need about your business and whether you're actually solving your customer's pain point. Because here's what happens, and this is what you're looking for. You start to hear the same things over and over again. And that's what you're looking for, right? You're not looking for a whole lot of conversations. You're looking to hear repetition, the same things. You're looking for the pain points that they're having and making sure your product is solving those pain points consistently. Right? If multiple people are voluntarily giving up that information and you're not prompting them, right? Like you don't want to be cheating and be like, hey, I think this is what you're dealing with, right? No, you don't want to do that. Let them volunteer information. Just listen. And if they're all starting to say the same things, that hey, this product is doing this for me. It's yeah, it's working towards helping this and it's helping that, it's fixing this. And they're all saying the same thing, and you know you've nailed product market fit. You found a solution that solves a specific problem and the specific problem is easy for you and them to identify that they have it and B, identify that it has been solved specifically by your product. And again, you don't have to do a lot. If the first three people you call are all saying the same thing, then you're good to go and you don't need to do any more calls. Again, you're looking for repetition. Now, if the first three people you call aren't saying the same thing, then you need to definitely keep going, right? If you're getting a lot of scattershot kind of answers, different replies, and everyone's saying something different about what your product is doing, you need to go on and keep going to five, then maybe go on to 10, right? And if five to 10 people, you don't need to keep going to like 100, you don't need to do a lot, or 20 or 30 or 40, that, you know, at some point it's overkill. If everyone's saying different things, you should also stop at around five to 10. You should stop there. You don't need to do a ton of these if you're not getting consistency, because that alone is telling me something. Right? It's telling you, one, either the problem you're solving is not clear, or two, it's not a high-value problem to this audience. Three, your product doesn't solve the, pro the problem. Or four, it may mean that you haven't explained it well enough during the buying process and post-purchase process. So when they actually receive the product and are using it, they don't get it. They just don't understand it. This is great information to know. So if you're having the situation where you're not getting consistency or repetition and answers, stop doing the calls right after five or 10 or so and go fix the problems. Go clarify your message or go clarify the problem or go update your website or update the, pro the product or update the help on how people use the product. Fix the problem so that you make sure people understand the problem you solve and how your solution solves it so that they start to re recognize that they their problem has been solved okay because you see you shouldn't be scared of phone calls right it's not a big deal phone interview people are so terrified to get on the phone and maybe they're not terrified or scared but there's always something more important right they look at it as less important but one of the reasons is they they think that they're going to be bothering people right and to me i don't see it that way in fact think of Put yourself on the, on the other side, right? People actually want to talk to the brand owner. Right? Just think about a product you just bought online, right? What's the most recent thing you bought online? What if you get a phone call, you answer the phone, and someone says, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I'm the founder of this company that you just bought from, and I just wanted to make sure you got your order and that there were no issues. What? You'd be out of the blue, you'd be, you'd be shocked. I'm like, okay. Like your immediate reaction is not, get off the phone. How dare you call me? That is not your immediate reaction. You'd want to talk to that person. At the very least, you'd want to answer, yeah, I got it. It's working pretty good. And if it was solving a high-value problem or you really liked it, you're going to expound on that. You're going to keep saying more. You're going to be willing to talk to the person, right? You'd want to talk to them. The same is true for your customer, right? And once you answer yes, they remember, and they're like, yeah, I got it. 
you can proceed to tell them you actually make the products, design them, and you'd love to get their opinion on it. Nine times out of 10, they'll say yes, and you should just sit back and listen as much as you can as a gold mine of information just comes pouring out, right? Because you liked it. You got the product, you used it, you're excited. Someone will want to know how what you think about it. You called me directly. Oh my, you must be very busy, but you, the founder, the creator, wanted to talk to me? Sure, I'll, I'll tell you what I like. Sure, take 10, 15 minutes, why not? And what will happen is that'll turn into 30 minutes, then 45 minutes, because I'll be, oh, and by the way this, and by the way that, right? So while they're talking, this is going to, so first, hopefully that gets you over the hump, willing to actually call them and talk to them, right? What's going to happen is they're going to start gushing, and they're going to start talking, and you're going to want to start talking as well and answering things or defending yourself or explaining, don't bother, don't just listen, right? And don't just listen. There's specific things you're listening for, right? Because there's going to be a lot of information that comes out. The key is to know what you're listening for. The most valuable information you're listening for is not in the words, but actually you're listening for the emotion behind the words, right? Things that they say that have emotion behind it. This product sucks at doing this. Oh, I can't believe it, right? It's very different than, yeah, I don't really, you know, particularly like this, this issue with it. Oh, I hate this. I can't stand when this happens. You're listening for those spikes, right? Or I'm so frustrated because it won't do this. Or man, it'd be so much better. Oh, I was struggling with this. Those are the kinds of phrases you're listening for, not just, yeah, it works. Yeah, I like it. It's pretty good. Mm -hmm. It's okay. That's fine. Oh, but this one thing, oh God, that you definitely need to fix that. You see the difference. There's a difference between when there's emotion behind the words and when there's not. You're listening for those. Those are the ones you write down because those are the ones that are high value problems versus just problems, right? High value benefits versus just benefits. Okay, so that's what you're listening for on the calls. And it's also the reason why you... You're, it's important not to just cherry pick the best customers or only talk to repeat customers, right? And people who buy are equally as important to talk to as people who, excuse me, people who don't buy are equally as important to talk to as people who do buy. So don't just talk to customers, right? Uh, or repeat customers. That's what a lot of people who decide, all right, fine, I'm going to call my customers. They actually just talk to their best customers, people who've spent the most or the people who've bought the most or bought the most often. Those are good to talk to, but you want a differing opinion also. You kind of want to hear from other people who may not be as happy or who are not bought in yet. Right. So talk to people at each stage of the buying process. Right. As long as you can get their number, obviously. You be, so this is people who abandon carts, for example, or put in their email address and you can email them and, and ask them for their email address. So they were browsing the website or signed up for your email list, but haven't purchased abandoned cart, but haven't purchased. Right. Or on social media. Right. People who maybe have never gone to the site, but they're on your social media and you. Uh, reach out to them on social media and ask to talk to them. Like, hey, how come you haven't bought anything from us? Right. So some of the key areas to talk to them is on social media before they purchase, uh, when they abandon a cart, after their first purchase, and repeat purchasers, right? All these types of people who are in your ecosystem and in your audience are valuable to talk to, right? Your followers, your leads, your customers, they provide the best insights, way better than any reports can. So please, please, please make it a practice to talk to them. All right. That was a lot of a lot about phone interviews. I spend a lot of time on it because I believe there are, I believe they are that important for measuring whether or not you have product market fit. It's fast and easier than any other way and far more accurate. So do it, right? 
There are some other ways qualitatively of measuring product market fit. We'll go into that next, but I want to stress phone interviews are by far the best way to really understand that your product is solving a true product, a true problem for your market. Okay. Um, so the other ways, customer service, right? So customer service is another way. Maybe you can't talk to five to 10 customers right now, uh, get on the phone with them, but you can look through your customer service inbox. Sift through the inbox looking for comments about your product, the experience, and the brand, right? These are the key things that are touch points for people. What are people saying? Is there feedback or confirmation that you've nailed the high value problem, that your product is actually solving that high value problem, uh, and that your product is good, that you have a solution, that your product is good? What other problems that they're discovering that you may not be solving for, right? These can inform and feed version two, version three of your product development cycle, right? There's gold in that inbox, okay? Social media, same as customer service, right? Uh, one thing is people are going to be reaching out, leaving comments, posting things, saying things to you. Read that stuff, right? Understand what they're saying and then reach back out to them. Reply. Don't just say, thanks, got it. Actually ask them questions, right? If they haven't bought, ask them questions about what's holding them back from buying. That'll get you all kinds of gold mines about what are their objections. Whether is it price that's the objection? Is it timing? Maybe just now is not the right time. Wait till payday or something, right? Maybe it's the product. Oh, I don't think the product can do this for me. Well, if it's objections, well, just defeat those objections. Say, hey, why don't I help you understand more? Like it will do that. It will do this and make the sale, right? Another thing to do on social media besides just replying on comments is to reach out unprompted. Right? These are people in your audience, again, just like phone interviews. If you can't get them on a phone interview uh, because you don't have their number, reach out on social media, unprompted. Hey, you're a follower of my page. I'd love to chat with you. Hey, have a minute to talk. You know, Shoot them your phone number, shoot them a link or whatever, and uh, talk to them. Or just chat with them through the DMs right? and ask them the customer, or the customer interview questions. Right, Understand who they are. Okay. Another way to measure how well product market fit is going is user experience design. Right, your website itself is your salesperson, and it's your job to make the sales process as smooth as possible for that prospect. Right, help them get through the purchasing process as easy as possible. So there's several tools for this. Right, things like Hotjar, a Lucky Orange. Right, Lucky Orange is my personal favorite. Right, Mouse Flow is another one. But you can do screen recordings where you can watch the whole journey. It's kind of creepy sometimes to think about it, but it's awesome when you think about it. We don't have this benefit. It's kind of like stores, how they watch people as they walk through the store so they can understand where to place items in the store to get people to pay attention to them the best, right? Every step is optimized. You could do the same thing for your website, right? Understand where they're getting stuck, right? Like rage clicking is a feature that a lot of these tools have where sometimes people will click multiple times in quick succession, click, 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 click. Why are they doing that? Because they assumed this was going to be a link. So broken links, buttons that don't work, that don't go anywhere, right? Little things like that frustrate your customers and make them bounce or they may not buy with from you. So fix those things. So do screen recordings, heat maps, scroll maps, click maps. Understand that if people are clicking on things, are they clicking the right things? If people are scrolling, if your offer is below the page, the, the cutoff where most people leave, you need to move that offer up the page so that you can actually get them to see the offer before they bounce without scrolling, right? Those kinds of things come out when you look at user experience design. And then arguably one of the other most important areas to look for product market fit where there's just obvious low hanging fruit of opportunity and information is in your returns department, right? Returns. Why are people returning? 
right? Uh, that it can definitely inform your product development, right? Why are they returning? You can just ask, ask them. In fact, this is another great place to do customer interviews, not just customers or prospects or folks on social media, but get on the phone with people who are returning, right? Because you made a promise to these people, you made a promise that this product was going to solve their problem. And then it obviously didn't because they sent it back. So you need to talk to these people, right? So all these ways, these are all the qualitative ways I recommend of understanding if your product is resonating with the market and validating that people actually want to buy it, right? That they want it and it's solving it. Uh, so it was returns in product development, your user experience design, social media, customer service, and phone interviews, right? All these ways are qualitative. Sometimes though, using these, the results can be unclear because you may not always get the exact answers you need, right? Because let's face it, like when you're talking to people or you're looking through customer service returns, people sometimes are just telling you what you want to hear, right? Especially if they're friends and family. And when you're going through customer service, social media, sometimes it's just the opposite. All you're really hearing is the loudest, angriest people reaching out and all they're doing is complaining or being hostile or being unreasonable in some way. That just kind of is how it works. So that information may not be as useful either. So that's why you need to balance that, right? And look at more, more and different types of metrics. So next, we're going to start talking about quantitative metrics, right? And that's what we're going to talk about next for how we should measure product market fit. Okay. The benefit of using quantitative metrics for validating product market fit is that they take away human bias and opinion, right? Raw numbers are cold, hard, and unemotional. Numbers don't lie. They just are what they are, and you have clean information to make decisions, right? People aren't fudging the numbers or trying to sway you or trying to say what you want to hear or impress you or vent their frustration to you or, you know, those kinds of things. It's just they choose one or the other. It's binary, right? So there are three different areas we look at that help us validate that we've achieved product market fit. So the three biggies are conversion rate, repeat purchase rate, and then reviews and surveys, right? How well those are working and return rate. So first one, conversion rate. Are people buying, right? The normal e-commerce conversion rate is 2%. But as you're starting out and you're getting going, you want that to be higher, right? Because that 2%, that's on super cold traffic. That's people who have never heard of, of you before. That's the goal is to be able to have a site that's so well-optimized, a problem that is so or a solution that solves a problem that is so high value that you can talk to a, or show it, show ads or show marketing to a hundred people and two of them buy right away. That's your goal is to get that good. But at first you don't have cold traffic, right? If no one's coming to your site, you know, so the only people coming to your site are people you're actively reaching out to somehow. That's warm traffic. So your conversion rate to start shouldn't be 2%. You should be closer to five to 10% of the people that come to your website are actually buying from you, right? Because you're sending them there. You're either on social, actively chatting with them and sending them in, or you're going to an event, but they know you. This is warm traffic. This isn't strangers who just clicked on an ad, right? If you're getting that 5 to 10% conversion rate, that's a good indicator. You found the right market and your problem or your solution is a good fit to their problem. It's a good indicator. So the first quantitative metric. Second quantitative metric, repeat purchases, right? If people actually have the problem that you solve and your product is solving the problem, they're going to want to buy it again. And again, assuming it's a, a repeatable purchase product, like if it lasts forever, obviously they're not going to buy it over and over again. 
but if they come back and buy other things, right, or buy other solutions or improve their purchases, right? And if it's a consumable product, right? If they're purchasing more for themselves, right? Like one client we just were talking to, they sell matcha tea, right? And it's consumable, but it's pre-made. They don't have to make it. So in that example, right, you want them buying multiple times, maybe three times a year isn't even enough, right? Maybe they buy every month, you know, get them on a subscription, right? If, you're pro- if their problem is, hey, I can't find good matcha, right? And your solution is delicious and easy to get, then you should be getting repeat purchases, a great indicator that you're solving their problems and meeting their need. On the flip side, if they're not repeat buying, they probably don't like the product. And that is a great quantitative metric that takes away all bias, all assumptions, all arguments. It's just simply they they vote with their check, right? Do they buy or do they not? And if they if they buy once, right, hopefully you're getting that five to seven percent conversion rate, and then they buy. But if they don't buy again, well, the product didn't really wow them. Okay. The third key quantitative metric is return rate. Right. So again, we get them to buy five to 10% conversion rate. We get them to buy again, but do they keep it and use it or do they send it back? That's what the return rate is. So if it's less, usually there's two different types of metrics. So if your brand has a lot of variance, that's the difference, right? So if you have a lot of variance, like apparel, size, color, all those kind of variations, sometimes that'll be higher. You probably get up to 10% sometimes with returns because people just buy the wrong size or they bought the wrong color or something. So things that are a little bit out of your control, it's just the process is tough. But if your brand does not have a lot of variations, then you should shoot for 5% or less. And you should probably be closer to two to 3% at the most. You're always going to have some returns. It's just going to happen. People make mess up or the, the shipping companies mess up, but you should shoot for having less than five to 10% at the most, right? Because you got to think about it. If people are willing to give you their money to try your product, it means that you successfully convince them that your product meets their need and solves a problem they had. However, if they send it back, your product broke that promise. And it's up to you to find out why and either fix it or pivot. So keep an eye on this metric to see how well your product is doing solving your customer's problem. Again, this is a great group of people to do customer interviews with. All right, so those are the big three. Conversion, big three quantitative. Conversion, repeat purchases, and return rate. There's a couple of others, right, that of ways of measuring product market fit that aren't really qualitative, aren't really quantitative. They fall somewhere in the middle, but are really valuable. I like to keep an eye on these, the number of reviews coming in after purchase and the number of survey responses you're getting, okay? So first of all, number of reviews coming in, right? This is after someone buys, and then you should be actively trying to get them. If no one is sending in reviews, your product probably didn't really solve their problem. Or it solved their problem, but it isn't really a high-value problem. So they don't care about it very much, right? There's no emotional spike. We humans are social animals. So if we find something that solves a major pain point in our lives, we're going to share it with other people. It's just a given. So if that's not happening, you know there's a problem with your solution solving their problem. And you need to work on that. You need to make sure you either message it uh, uh, better or work on a different problem, or you don't quite have product market fit, or you're not quite solving a high volume problem, right? So, uh, however, if it is, and you're just not getting reviews, you definitely want to, uh, it's definitely something you want to have happen. So encourage this behavior, right? Actively ask people for reviews. There's a lot of apps that you can help you get automated emails sending out to request reviews. Like you can use Klaviyo, Stamp.io, Yapo, a bunch of others, Judge.me, 
a lot of different apps. So re remove that from the consideration. Like maybe it's not that they're sending it out because they just don't know how, right? Like you want to remove that uh, from consideration. So use one of these tools to make sure you're encouraging that behavior so that if they're having these good experiences, you make it as easy as possible for them to give you a review. And then if you've done all that and people still aren't giving you reviews, you know you have a problem. This product isn't quite solving a high value problem, okay? So that's one. The second one is surveys, right? So just like reviews, surveys, I would send these out, right? These are a gold mine of information, right? And the benefit is they're, they're a little different than like the phone interviews because you, you can ask your customers as much as you want, as much as you can get away with, right? They're almost as good as phone calls, but not as good because you'll get far less unplanned information, right? Because you can't ask any follow-on questions. You only get questions, answers to questions that you ask up front. And that's it. But they're great because you can reach far more people this way than you can with phone calls, right? Your goal with this survey is to confirm your assumptions, right? You're not really trying to, like with the phone interview, get a whole lot of unstructured information that's just gold, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even think that. I never thought I could use the product that way. I never would have understood that. That's not really what you're looking for as much with a survey. With a survey, what you're trying to understand is your market, right? If you've got that right, your assumptions about the market, your assumptions about the problem, right? Is it actually the is the problem as bad as they think it is right how do they describe the problem what does it look like you're trying to understand more about the pain points what are they struggling with are they having problems with right and whether your product is solving that high value problem sufficiently if it is if it's not right and then ask them these questions in an open-ended way right how would you describe yourself why did you want this product what problems did it solve for you how did this product solve that problem for you and if it didn't solve the problem why not right and not just, and don't just ask them one way, right? Those are some example questions, but ask them a different way. If you were to describe this problem to a friend, what problems would you say it solved? Why should they buy this product? And what would you say to them if they say the price is too high, right? Sometimes people don't give the most thorough answers when they're summarizing their own experience, but they do stop and think a little more deeply when you ask them to make a recommendation. So asking them the question, the same questions, two different ways, one that points to their experience and one that points to someone else's experience uh, makes them stop and think a little more deeply, right? So you can get some really, really good insights that way, okay? All right, so those were the quantitative and the qualitative ways, right? Qualitative ways are conversion rate, your repeat purchase rate, your return rate, and then we talked about number of reviews, we talked about the number of surveys coming in. Another one that you can use is net promoter score. Uh, it's also another effective one just to see how people are, if they're willing to recommend you or not. Nice one, one question survey type of item, right? Okay. So the last part of measuring product market fit is less about customers, both the qualitative and quantitative measures, and more about the business, right? We are, like I said, we've looked at the quantitative, the qualitative ways for measuring product market fit, but there's still an important question to ask even if we've achieved it using those metrics and we know it, and we know we've got product market fit. Big question is, can we afford to do this business, right? Even if the business can excite customers and people are buying, uh, it still has to make good business sense to do this business, right? Sometimes we accidentally get caught up in our ideas and in the startup culture that we want to start businesses that are uh, hustle hard, get going, you could do it, right? But they're doomed to fail from the beginning because the profitability just isn't there. So that's why we need this to be taken into account very 
early in the process, right? We can't just get caught up in the excitement that, man, everyone's buying, everyone's saying they're going to uh, tell their friends about it. And this this thing is going gangbuster. Like everybody loves it. The phone interviews are positive. The customer surveys are amazing. Like everyone's just loving this product. Well, if you're not making money off of it, <laughs> that's a problem. Here's an example, right? I'm sure if we started, what if we started a business where we basically sold $10 for $5? Right? It's a ridiculous example, I know, but stick with me here. Right? All of our measurements for product market fit would show we validated the concept and it's a great business to start and run. We would definitely achieve product market fit with this business, right? Phone interviews would, would give lots of high value problems for us to solve, like all kinds of reasons. Oh man, I need the money for this. I need the money for that. Oh, I can do this with it. Thank you so much for giving me this $10 and selling it to me. I'm definitely willing to pay you five dollars for it right our quantitative kpis would show amazing conversion rates right i'm pretty sure they'd be close to almost a hundred percent of people would buy ten dollars for five dollars right there'd be those skeptical people who are like ah this i don't think this is true this i don't trust it this is a scam right but i'm pretty sure you'd have much higher than two to ten percent conversion rate much higher than five for sure you'd have quite a few of people converting and you'd have hardly any returns <laughs> if you sold them ten dollars for five i highly doubt People would return the product, right? You definitely come in under our five to ten percent quantitative measure, right? But here's the problem: selling ten dollars for five dollars would leave us negative cash flow on every sale, and we'd never make a profit. No profit. That's not a good business model. Okay. So part of achieving product market fit is ensuring that your products are priced in a way that you can actually build a business and serve the market your solution profitably. So here's what I recommend when pricing your products, right? Call it product margin, right? What I want you to do is when you start, start by charging 10 times what you paid for your product. Yes, you heard me right. Sell your product for 10 times what you buy it for. No keystone pricing. I say this because people are always like, oh, I paid $10 for it, I'll sell it for 20. No, sir, Bob, please don't do that, right? You don't want to do that. I repeat, no keystone pricing especially in the early days, okay? I know that seems shocking to some, so I don't mind. Like if 10 to 1 seems extreme, I get it. I get it, I get it, I get it. 10 times what I paid, it just doesn't feel right. And that's fine. You can come down a little bit, but I don't recommend you sell your product for any less than six times what you paid for it when you're starting out, right? And I have several reasons why. We'll get into that right next, right? You have to have enough margin to build the business on. And if people are not willing to pay you this much, six times what you paid, then it's a great indication you actually haven't properly achieved product market fit and solved a high value problem with this product that they're willing to pay for, right? It's a great indicator, right? And not only that, if you don't make that much money, you don't have enough margin to test anything. You definitely can't run ads, right? Because uh, you're going to have to pay 20, 30% of your revenue, two, $3 of that $10, right? 20, 30% just for running ads, testing to, to figure out if it's going to work. Um, but you need that margin for your test to fail and you can still be okay financially because that's what entrepreneurship is all about, trying a bunch of stuff and seeing what sticks. Unfortunately, though, if every test has to work out because you don't have 20, 30% of revenue to waste, then you won't learn anything because you'll be constantly stressed out. You'll be constantly at break even. You'll be constantly red in your bank account, right? So you got to have margin to play with. And having 2x markups doesn't give you the margin to really test, right? Not only that, having 2x markup or keystone pricing doesn't give you any margin to discount, 
right? Remember, we talked about in the first episode that e-commerce is all about trust, right? Building trust. That's the game. Uh, it might have been the second episode. But uh, if you're buying for $10 and selling for $60 to $100, then you'll have the room to do 10% or more discounts to get people over the hump to buy your product, right? People are skeptical, right? And discounts are an important way to help give people an extra incentive to buy your product sight unseen without trying it over the internet, right? They're just, people are just skeptical. So this gives them a way to feel comfortable getting over that hump, right? Another reason to do a 10X markup is that customers actually will understand, especially if you're doing something unique, right? They're, they're okay with it being higher priced and won't care anywhere near as much as you think they will. Why? Because they're not focused necessarily on the price if you've done it right, if you've done the product market fit research right, the qualitative and quantitative metrics, right? Because you're solving a problem they need a solution to, a high value problem to a massive pain point, right? They're not thinking about you, your price, they're thinking about themselves, right? Uh, this price point gives you more insight into the problems you're solving if people are willing to not just pay you, but overpay you for the solution. And it actually will help you make sure that your long-term, your business will last because you're solving problems that matter to people that are willing to pay a premium for it, right? So don't feel bad about charging more because you may offend your customers. They'll be thinking about themselves and their problems more than you. Trust me. That's what they're thinking about when they're seeing, you know, that dollar amount. They're like, man, yeah, it's 60 bucks, but man, this problem is costing me a lot more than 60 bucks. I really hope this thing works. That's where you want them to be. I need to get this thing because if that's all it takes is $60, 100 bucks to solve this problem that's costing me who knows how much, then I'm good. I'm, I'm going to get it. That's the place you want to think about. You don't want to think about, well, I only paid $10 for it, so I'm only going to charge them 20 You don't want to be in that, that environment. Okay. So these are the reasons why I think you should charge six to 10 X markup. But again, I'm just one person, one voice. In case you're still not a believer, let me try this. Let's look at the flip side. Here's a reason you shouldn't charge keystone pricing or quote unquote reasonable markups, right? So first off, if you do keystone pricing where you just charge twice what you paid for it, the price will seem like such a good deal if you have product market fit, right? You'll have people who are just like, man, I was willing to pay 60 to $100 for it, but they're only charging 20. Oh my goodness. It'll almost seem too cheap <laughs> to them. And sometimes that may actually turn people away. It's like, that's it. It's only 20. It must not work, right? Or they'll buy it immediately. They'll buy three. They'll buy four, right? That's 60 to $80 right there, right? 40, 60 bucks. They're already paying more. They're just buying more. And what'll happen is you'll end up leaving a lot of money on the table, right? Because remember, people are really thinking that this problem you're solving for them is worth way more than you're charging for your solution. And you'll sell out like crazy. What you'll notice in your quantitative metrics is that your conversion rate will be really high. We were already talking about 5 to 10% conversion rates, but if you're converting more than that, then you, you it's another good indicator that you really have solved product market fit and you can raise your prices. That's an okay thing, right? Because having your prices too low, that's a problem for a young company. Uh, it's one of those hidden problems that people don't talk about often, but selling a lot is actually a bad thing, right? You'll sell too fast and you can't keep up. Because your operations and supply chain may not be sturdy enough here, right? I'll give you an example. When we first started over at GE, uh, GraceLea.com, the, the retailer that we started as a family, the, we were Grace was really wanting to sell them for $20, right? We started at $30. They weren't really selling. We were concerned that you know people weren't buying it. Maybe the price is too high. So we lowered it to $20, 2x markup, 
right? We were thinking, all right, we're making them for eight to ten dollars, two X market. Uh, so it seemed reasonable, right? And then we found a pocket, a market that was just dying for our solution, right? We had an influencer show up, just blew us up. We were selling hundreds. We went from selling two or three a week to hundreds a day because people were just buying like crazy, right? And because we were buying, we had to go back, back to the manufacturer and put in a bigger order. Uh, and so we got better pricing, right? So they were able to get our pricing down to 4 to $5. So you would think, oh, sweet, keep the price at $20 and just get a better margin. But honestly, customer service was blowing up. It was a headache, right? Uh, we needed more people there. Shipping blew up, so we needed more people there. We needed more supplies for those shipping uh, shipments. We needed more manufacturing, which means more shipping from the manufacturer to us, more orders, more dealing with them, more materials, more supplies. We were going to the factory more often. We we're shelling out more cash for inventory buys. It was miserable. We were actually upset making sales for a young company to have to do that much operationally. That takes away time from actually creating products, doing product development, doing customer interviews. That's what you need to be focused on is making sure product market fit is truly honed in instead of just fulfilling orders, right? So what we decided to do was, you know what, let's raise the price back up, right? Let's raise it uh, up to fifty, up to $30, right? So we raised it by 50%. The assumption was we'd cut the amount of uh, orders in half. That was the goal, right? Just break even on the raise. But what we saw was sales only dropped 30%. So we actually were selling we didn't drop by 50%, we dropped by 30%. So we're making more revenue on a higher price item and we were doing less on the upside. So we had an even higher margin, lower costs, less headaches, more money. It just worked out all around. Because again, where was our customer gonna find the solution? They couldn't at the time, right? It just wasn't out there. So we had a high value problem. We were willing, people were willing to pay more even though we were paying less and less and less. Okay, so please don't fall into the trap of keystone pricing. It's unnecessary. You don't have to do it if you're solving a high value problem and you have product market fit. If you're still not a believer, keystone pricing isn't good. Here's the other thing. It's not a secret. People know your pricing. They know what your cost is or they can find out. They can get on Alibaba and check how much your product costs. Right. It's not that big of a secret. Like you're not offending anyone or keeping any secrets. Right. I mean, just think about Shark Tank. Right on Shark Tank, they demand people say all their prices, all their numbers up front. But yet, every Shark Tank company sells out as soon as the episode airs. Right? People still buy, knowing this person is making a huge markup. They know full well. So you shouldn't feel uncomfortable charging what you're charging. Right? And if you still think Keystone pricing is the right way to go, maybe you're like, hey, I want to go into retail, so they're going to demand it. Sure, okay. But uh, just know that if you choose that route. That person you're speaking to probably knows your pricing better than you, right? If not from you, then from the person who came in before you, right? Or someone like you, uh, or from the fact that probably they can probably call on the same manufacturers you're using, right? Or they have their own, or they'll take your product, send it to their manufacturer and get a quote from them on your exact product, right? These people know what the pricing is in the industry or can find it out. So you don't have to just go off of Keystone, okay? Um, you can't, you don't, you, and also I don't recommend the reason why I say that keystone pricing is what you do at scale when you're selling tens, hundreds, millions of products, right? Over years, right? Where you're ordering large amounts, you're driving the cost as low as possible to almost the at cost of the raw materials and the labor. That's what you're trying to get to when you're starting. You can't afford 
to do that because you've got too much to build the market to get to that volume, right? There's an inverse relationship between volume and price, right? So the more you're making, the less the price of that is. The less you're making, the greater the price is. So you've got to account for that by having a higher price when you're doing lower volume. So to recap, financially, it is crucial to have a 6 to 10x markup on your product. All right. Now, let's be careful. Remember, who am I talking to? This is for inventors, private labelers, brand owners who are building their own supply chain and customer acquisition pipeline for their own brands and products. Right? If you're an Amazon seller or drop shipping or an affiliate, this doesn't apply to you as much since you're partnering with the marketplace platforms like Amazon and Walmart to do customer acquisition, right? Or the manufacturers in an affiliate or dropship model, right? Who do the supply chain for you. Those folks who, if you're in the Amazon model or the dropship model or the, you know, affiliate model or your any any of those kind of models, marketplaces, manufacturers, if you're not building your own supply chain and customer acquisition, then you're not going to be able to have a six to ten margin, right? Uh, where you're because you're going to have to partner with your partners, your marketplace, your manufacturer, right? Uh, however, if you're one of us building unique solutions to high value problems that haven't really been solved in your way before, you'll need this six to ten x margin to make the bit to make business sense, right? And be able to do both customer acquisition and build your own supply chain. If you can't sell your product to anyone with six to ten x product margins, then you haven't achieved product market fit. All right. So in conclusion, we've talked about three ways to validate you have product market fit, qualitative methods, quantitative metrics, and financial metrics. If you're serving your customers and having deep conversations with them, measuring your KPIs quantitatively, and pricing your products so you make a healthy margin that allows you to test, you will have no problem scaling your business past six figures and going from side hustle to full-time income. You'll be in that bucket of business owners that make business look easy. A simple but powerful statement to use to summarize everything we talked about today about how to measure if you have product market fit is this. Product market fit is when people are excited to pay you your price for your solution. All right, that's it. Stay tuned for the next episode where we'll get practical. We've been talking at a very high level conceptually about how to go from six to seven figures by going over product market fit. But in the next episode, we'll dive into the specific e-commerce stack that you'll need to build early on in your business that will help you scale rapidly to six, seven, and even eight figures. You don't want to miss it. All right. Subscribe, rate, and review this show on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. If you know of any other e-commerce businesses trying to go from six to seven figures a year in revenue, or from seven to eight figures a year in revenue, share this show with them. Visit our website, www.laysystems.com, and sign up for our newsletter. As a thank you for signing up for our newsletter, you'll immediately get access to our Klaviyo email marketing resource kit. A must if you're selling online to make sure you're getting the most revenue you can from back-end sales and not having to consistently scale through front-end paid acquisition. I'm Emmanuel Alea. We'll see you on the next episode.